0: I hid inside army tents in porta potties to pump secretly and quietly so none of the senators knew what I was doing and I wouldn't, you know, get in trouble.
1: I'm Raj Kumar and you're in the DevEx Book Club. Maybe you're a global development nerd like me. Maybe you work at the UN or an NGO, or maybe you're just excited to hear from some of the world's leading authors on the most important issues of the day. Either way, you're in the right place. Grab a snack, get a comfortable seat, and don't worry if you haven't read the book. You're very much welcome. Get ready for our discussion. Welcome, everybody. Uh, This is a special podcast episode of the DevX Book Club because we're doing it here on Twitter Spaces live, so we've got a live audience and we'll record this and, and post it as part of our podcast. And it's really great to have many of you here. Thanks for joining us. Um, This week's book club author is Fatima Sumar. And Fatima is the executive director of the Center for International Development at Harvard University. And her book that we're here to talk about is The Development Diplomat, Working Across Borders, Boardrooms, and Bureaucracies to End Poverty. Uh, Great to have you here, Fatima.
0: Uh, Raj, it's so exciting to be here and part of the DevX Book Club. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, no, no, it's a a real thrill for many reasons, Um, one of which is, you know, we started DevEx at Harvard's Kennedy School, and it was the Center for International Development that was very welcoming and supportive back when Jeff Sachs was there. This is quite a long time ago, two decades ago. And uh, and then reading your book and seeing so many people I know in there, and it's such a personal book, um, I just thought it would be great to have this discussion together and to have other people involved, too. Uh, here on twitter spaces so thank you for for doing this Um, maybe we could just dive in right into it you know you in the title of the book kind of say it all uh the development diplomat right that's not a that's not a typical term uh, but you kind of coin it in this book and you make the case that that that's what you are that's the career you ended up maybe you didn't plan to but you ended up developing a career as a development diplomat you know, working across the, the U.S. government in different kinds of roles, uh, partly on the Hill, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, partly in the executive branch at both the State Department and the Millennium Challenge Corporation. And you kind of lay out in really plain terms what it's like, like both professionally and personally, to work in these institutions. And you argue that we need to break down the silo that exists between – diplomacy we think of the state department of embassies and and development agencies like usaid or the dfc or the millennium challenge corporation and that you you ended up having this really unique career where you blended both things but not everybody does that and i guess maybe we could just start there with this idea what is a development diplomat why is it an important concept
0: well you know it's funny how i got into my career which kind of explains some of where i ended up with this concept of development diplomacy so i um, started out actually in the national security and foreign policy spaces that's what i studied in undergrad and graduate school when i um, came out of grad school as a presidential management fellow at the state department and then i went to the senate Um, I really focused on a career on Asia, on foreign policy. And, um, you know, the irony is, and I know I'm now at the Center for International Development up at Harvard and uh, focused on a career in international development. But the irony is I didn't actually take much coursework in international development back in the day or think of myself in any way interested or as a development professional academically or um, in the in the career path that I have started out at in my 20s.
1: Hey, you and- mentioned, Fatima, you mentioned that in the book, which I found striking now that you're at a university because you provide some advice for what people ought to be studying. And there's a lot of advice, by the way, in this book uh, in terms of you know, careers and, and studies and for younger people starting out in their career. And you mentioned that you were able to get through your entire program without ever taking a course in international development.
0: Yeah, I really didn't think that's what I was going to do in my career. I really thought I would, you know, on Diplomacy and foreign policy, and in my limited understanding, in my you know early twenties of what that meant, that meant a lot of politics. It meant public policy, and I certainly took my fair share of uh, statistics and economics, um, and you know all the quantitative courses, but with a real focus and eye towards foreign policy. And so I think one of the biggest surprises early in my career in my twenties was that in the foreign policy realm, um, both at the State Department and then when I was in the Senate, I kept ending up with oversight of the development budgets. Um, And I remember, and I write about this in the book, where I was very young, I was 28 years old, and I was um, one of Senator Kerry then's senior staffers on the Afghanistan Pakistan accounts. And I had oversight of about six billion dollars of U.S. development spending in the Afghanistan Pakistan region. This is at the height of the U.S. war in Afghanistan back in you know the 2009 10 period. And um, I really realized I was going to have to learn quickly on the job. You know what? You know, if we're going to do oversight of our development agencies, what what, what goes into that? How, how is the money being spent? Uh, what does it mean to have successful development programming in Washington and Kabul and Islamabad and in other places? What were the perspective of our implementing partners and then those communities on the ground that were supposed to be benefiting from the aid? I ended up launching and doing years of investigations on our development finance and how we were spending US taxpayer dollars from USAID and other agencies. And through that kind of back channel, backdoor way, is how I learned a lot about development and learned on the job. Um, you know, to fast forward in my career, I ba- ended up back as a senior diplomat at the State Department and then ended up in senior roles at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is one of our development agencies. of government. And in each of those positions and jobs, what I kept coming back to was the intersectionality between foreign policy and international development. And if I was going to be either a really good diplomat or a really good development official, I had to understand the other. I had to be able to speak the way the other side spoke to be able to translate and to be able to have the training required to really understand not just how to put a big development deal together politically, and to be able to bring partners along in that journey, but how to design one, how to implement one, and how to do the oversight to make sure that the dollars were actually well spent. And so through the course of that journey um, in the US government for about 15 years or so, I realized that we're missing a fundamental space in how we are training the next generation Um, We train people right now in our public policy circles and worlds to be diplomats. We train them in foreign policy, national security, and public policy. And on the other side, we train them to be international development experts with serious quantitative and other types of academic training, but we don't train for these spaces in between the development diplomacy spaces. And I've had, you know, I've really had such a wonderful career. But the reasons I think that I've had the impact that I hope I've had in so many countries around the world, um, implementing you know billions of dollars of programming. Is because I could I could you know work across both those spaces in a fluid way, and I think that development diplomacy space is missing in our lexicon. It's missing in our training, and it's missing in the ways we actually work. I provided examples from the U.S. government because it's where I worked, but I suspect that we could replicate and have similar examples from other bilateral and multilateral um, governments and spaces as well.
1: I, I want to come back to some of this in our conversation, but, but let's just stay a little bit more personal to begin. Cause as I say, the book is really personal. And, you know, one of the reasons I connected a lot to it is you and I have some similar parallel histories in that you came as an immigrant. You had a, a very much an immigrant experience from Malaysia and India coming to California and New Jersey. I have a similar roots in India and a similar you know, childhood growing up in New Jersey. So it was really fascinating to get your worldview. What, what is it? maybe just for those who haven't yet read the book, what is it about the way you were brought up that made you want to work in this in this space? And what was your experience like, you know, coming from that background and ending up in this space?
0: Well, you know, Raj, and I mean, maybe you relate to this as well with your background, but as a child growing up, as an immigrant here in the United States, I mean, I didn't come from a family that you know knew anything or was connected to politics or to foreign policy or to any of the things I do today it was completely foreign in how we grew up um we were barely you know we barely even felt part of american society growing up i mean i think my 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 dad's proudest moment i know is voting that was a very big deal to him but outside of voting in a presidential election didn't really feel much connection either locally or nationally to my government or to the work that i do today and um One of the reasons I chose in writing this book to be more personal and more vulnerable, which was, you know, kind of hard for me, actually, in some ways to put so much of myself out there, is I think that we don't often talk about the stories behind what it takes to do these jobs. And for those of us that may not come from families or communities or societies that even understand what these jobs are, how to connect into that. Um, I grew up, you know, as in the 1980s, uh, largely in New Jersey as a kid where assimilation was kind of the name of the game. We weren't, you know, I never used my real name until I was, I think, 24, 26 years old. And so when I first started pronouncing my name properly, mm-hmm. I had a very Americanized version of my name for my entire childhood and college experience growing up because it's, I was meeting people where they were at, not asking people to meet me where I was at, um, and so, you know, even though I was so interested in foreign policy and international relations from a young age, because I came from so many different parts of the world and was interested in language and culture and travel, I had no real kind of mentorship or experience either in my family or in my community about what to do with that passion or with that interest or how to connect with that. Um, really in many ways, wasn't until I got to graduate school where I found that mentorship, both academically and socially to help guide me through those next steps. Um, most of my career, I worked in largely white male spaces where, uh, I was kind of the odd duck out. I worked. Yeah. In- you
1: talk, you talk about trying to learn about sports so that <laughs> you I'm could, still you, could to learn about. <laughs> you could have a conversation at some sports bar with secretary Kerry. Uh, I thought that was a funny vignette in the book.
0: Um, So much of, I think, the immigrant experience or those maybe you're not an immigrant, but maybe you feel like an outsider or you're not part of the dominant norm of a culture is really trying to figure out where is your place in this? Um, Can you have a role? Can you make it? Can you be supported? What are the growing pains of a journey in these types of careers? And so I wanted to be personal and share some of those stories as as a woman, as a mom, as an immigrant, as a Muslim, as a South Asian, and really trying to share with the next generation, at least my version of that story, um, if it resonates
1: for others. I, I think it really does. And, and you know, just like you do in the book, I think in this conversation, we can weave back and forth between the personal and the professional. And just go, going back to your original point about development diplomats, this this basic idea that you have that's the core of the book, I can imagine people who have lived and grown up and worked through the silos saying, hang on a second, you know, it's, it's actually a problem that development and diplomacy are becoming increasingly linked, you know, looking at other countries that have actually merged their development agencies into their foreign affairs ministries, thinking about the UK and Canada and Australia as examples and saying, you know what, we need to keep these things separate here in the U S and, and that, That feeling or that idea is out there at the same moment that, of course, China uh, and the U.S. are in a growing conflict and competition that is including in this area, right? And so there's more and more, if you go go to Capitol Hill, there's more and more bipartisan support for, you know, anything anti-China, anything that's going to help the competition with China, we should do. And that's taking over a lot of the rationale for development spending. I guess I wonder... You know, you've weaved through these two areas in your career, but do you think there's a chance here that the development side of the picture will end up losing out? You know, that we'll end up in a situation where long term development just loses to short term foreign policy interests the more we merge these things together?
0: I think. I I hear your point, Raj, and I would say that in some ways we're already losing out in the development community. I mean, so much of our foreign aid is already politicized. It's already serving national security and foreign policy aims first and foremost, right? I mean, if it wasn't, if we were actually spending our foreign aid dollars just on where poverty or inequality was the greatest, you would see us spending money in completely different ways in different countries at different proportions than we are currently at least in the United States, but I would argue for the, the UK, the EU and many other places as well. Um, so we're already in a space where we've overly politicized foreign aid um, and you see that happening in Washington and London and so many other places. The difference, I think, with this concept of development diplomacy is not to politicize foreign aid. Um, It's not to add to the political of it. But instead, it's to say that we have these mechanisms that at the end of the day, you know, at a bilateral level, for instance, but this applies to the multilateral banks as well and other spaces, but um, at, at the bilateral level, If you're going to strike an agreement with the government of ghana or another government for what reform should look like or what infrastructure should look like or what a design or development program should look like you know at the technical level you may reach an agreement with the health ministry or the education or the agricultural ministry but at a political level that deal often if it's if it's a a big enough scale for impact that's being done at the foreign ministry level, the finance ministry, and if it's, if it's even you know, maybe bigger dollars or political importance, it can go all the way up to the prime minister or the president. Those are inherently political actors that we are dealing with in order to secure national buy-in or regional buy-in to a concept on the development side. And yet oftentimes the people negotiating the political deals don't have the development training. So think about ambassadors. Even in the the U.S. State Department lexicon with the Foreign Service with economic officers, they may be trained in the econ cone, but it doesn't mean they have the international development training or the background to really understand the design, the implementation, the evaluation, monitoring or oversight of the development programs or the objectives that we're trying to achieve on the technical side those that are putting the deals together are often development experts there are economists there are subject matter experts Um, But they often lack the political training of how to interact in these political spaces, whether that's foreign finance ministries. It could be mayor's offices. It could be a governor's offices. It could be at the political space. They often lack that training in country and certainly in Washington, D.C., with Congress and other political actors and stakeholders. And so we're fundamentally missing some of the required ingredients for what it takes to, to actually get not just a design or a program or concept across but to actually get the structural reforms across the table and to get that buy-in politically and at a development level in these countries. And I think the absence of these spaces has meant that we're we're working in such different silos, it's easy for aid to get politicized because we don't often understand what the actual development objectives are we're trying to do and how to make a better political pitch to, um, to to those actors of, of why that money is needed where. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at Devex, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of Devex Invested our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit
1: devx.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. You know, this book, it's really an insider's book, right? You talk about these agencies that are not known to many people, and how they really work on the inside, and there is a vignette in here about how you worked on a report that ended up becoming really influential on the unsustainability of U.S. aid to Afghanistan, and turned into a big media storm, and and really you know pushed this narrative and this idea that actually we were spending a lot of money but not in the right ways, and and I guess I, just thinking about that as a jumping-off point, I, I wonder what your take is now. You know, looking back, having written this book, having all this experience in these agencies about the way we do development work and the way the United States spends its money across 20 federal agencies. Um, You know, how effective is it? What what do you think is working? What do you think isn't?
0: Well, the first thing I would say, and for those of you listening um, that may be in, in more junior stages of your career, You know, remember, keep in mind your North Star of why you got into the line of work you did. And and I say that because it can take a lot of courage sometimes, or at least some courage, (laughs) to both do the work but to also speak truth to power about what you're seeing what you're doing and when you think it's not working or it can be done better to bring that to light to either your immediate supervisors your agency your organization or to external actors whether that's the media congress or other stakeholders in the system that could care and could do something about it and so the first thing i would say is i'm really um looking back on my own career um i'm glad that i could I had the support systems um, and the courage to speak out in my 20s and my early 30s um, to run these investigations and to speak out, even at kind of political and career risk to myself. I mean, at one point, I remember I was quite unpopular in Democratic circles in Washington, um, being critical of how USAID and the White House and the State Department were spending money in the Obama administration. And coming from a Democratic Senate, that was really, really not only unpopular, it was um, actively frowned upon. So the first thing I would just say is, I think it takes more and more courage for those of us that know something is not working to be able to say it, because oftentimes we're friends with the very people in power. Um, and there can be, you know, the same people that we grew up with professionally speaking in our circles are in the same positions or different agencies are in positions of power and it's hard to be critical publicly around what is not working. And I think we need to kind of break through that in more courageous ways. The second thing I would say is our aid is largely politicized in so many different ways, at least in bilateral and multilateral spending accounts. and. We're not often um, going to where the problem is either the greatest, and uh, and too often we still have a very colonial model of who gets to make the decisions on how much money is spent, where the money is spent for what purposes, and to decide what success means and is how and how that's defined. Um, you know, we really need a fundamental rethinking, I think, in many ways, of our foreign aid structures, philosophies, and the shift of power. And it's not just a localization conversation, which I know is now like the new um, word on the street in the development circles, but it's really about a shift of power of who gets to decide what their futures look like um, and what role taxpayers from other countries have in in, then having that say as well.
1: Yeah, that's a more fundamental shift, I agree, than localization. Do you think it's possible, like when you look at the efforts right now to localize, spending i mean in some ways mcc where you work was meant to be local and it is in some ways right that it's coordinated with the country the country submits a proposal for what they want to spend the money on you create some kind of a a domestic um coordinating body that includes civil society as well as government i guess do you feel like we're on the path toward that vision that you laid out there or, or do you think you know these are The kinds of steps we've seen before kind of more like a fad, you know, is localization a bit more of that fad or do you think it's on the on the path to that fundamental reform?
0: I think the shift that's happened that's real and worthy of note in the last five years or so is this concept that we have to shift power. Um, and that we cannot just kind of keep replicating neocolonialism um, modes and methodologies and then say, you know, we're equal partners with, our part, with, equal partners with those we work with around the world. Um, I, I think that shift is noticeable and I think the intent is genuine. To be real about what it's gonna take to do that is much, much more than the terminology of localization. It is really a big shift that's needed in terms of thinking through how money is, how services and goods are procured, how decisions are made, and risk management in particular. We're very, very risk averse in Washington and other European and Western capitals about deciding what success looks like and how much risk we're willing to take on. I think the other shift that's happening at the at the same time that's not in the development community or about localization is that you have countries all around the world in Africa and Latin America and Asia and elsewhere that want to own their own futures and you know aren't don't don't want to be as dependent on the 1960s you know post World War II models of foreign aid anymore. Um, they they see opportunity. Um, they all they see the pitfalls of foreign aid traps debt financing. Um, The traps of having no voice in, um, you know, structures like the UN Security Council and other spaces, and they are starting to rewrite their own expectations and demands for what their future looks like. And it's it's you know, we it's up to us to be listening to that and to take them seriously. I think the future is not in Washington, it's not in you know London or Brussels, I think the future is in Addis and the future is going to be in Manila and the future is going to be in, you know, um, in Latin America and other places where that's going to be written and we're going to have to start being more humble about the changes that are going to be forced upon us even if we don't like it and it's not at the pace or the schedule that we wanted it to go on. And I think that's a hard shift, not just at the government level. I think it's a really hard shift for INGOs as well. Um, You know, I I had a chance to spend a few years in the INGO sector and between government stints. And I think you're seeing the same struggles being thought through, debated and replicated there as well.
1: I've got a story related to this, which sounds so compelling. It's hard to believe it's true, but a good friend who I know really well, insists this is what happened. She was in the room uh, when Ellen Johnson Sirleaf took power as the new president of Liberia, you know, more than a decade ago, and says that, you know, that she walked in with the president to to the president's office. And it was, you know, just in a complete state of disarray. There are boxes everywhere, broken furniture, no air conditioning, and there wasn't even a desk for the president. And the American ambassador apparently was there. The Chinese ambassador was there. And the president says, you know, they asked, the American ambassador asked, what do you need from us? And president certainly said, well, to start, I need a desk. And the American ambassador, again, according to my friend, looked like, wow, I have no idea what to do with this request. You know, this is not what we do. Um, And the Chinese ambassador piped up and said, we can do this. And within a day had a net, had a desk, had air conditioning and had the place cleaned up. I mean, again, it's just one story and and it's who knows, but in your experience, when you think about this challenge between the U S and China, that's playing out in the places you just mentioned in places like Addis, you know, what do you think about our model versus theirs? And are we geared up and set up to, to win in the way you describe to, to win on behalf of values and democracy and human rights or not?
0: Well, you know, for me personally, and, and, you know, the freedom of now talking to you, Raj, right now, in this moment of my life is I I don't work for the U S government and I don't have to wave the flag in any way, shape or form. And um, just to say, like, for me, the winning is not the U S China, the winning is whether or not we can empower people all around the world to get to own their own futures without it being kind of, um, you know, um, dictated to them by outside and external actors, uh, whether that's foreign powers, um, companies or or other stakeholders. Um, I'm really struck, you know, I've done, I've worked in so many different countries around the world and I'm really struck by the frustrations I've heard from government and civil society leaders, where we go in as Americans or as foreign actors, um, and we, we, we come in with our incentives. And that can be financial. It could be you know whatever our packages are that we're ready to deliver in the name of partnership. And it's because we've done the analysis of what we think they need, what we're willing to give, we're willing to partner with. And you, know, when you when you talk to them, their frustration of you're not even listening to who we are, what we need. We already know our problems. We don't need, you know, a multi-year analysis to tell us that we don't have power for our communities, for instance, or that the roads don't work or that our schools don't work. We know our problems. We actually already know our solutions in many cases. We've tested them out. We've seen results of innovation and entrepreneurship in Kathmandu. We've seen this in Bangkok. We've seen this in so many different places. And uh, we have the technical capacity. We've trained up, actually, an entire cadre of high school undergraduate and graduate leaders in these spaces but we can't keep them here right because maybe the jobs don't exist or maybe the you know maybe the um the the environment the enabling environment doesn't exist and so i think there's incredible capacity in so many countries around the world where they know what they want they know what they need um and if we could make it easier to just meet them where they're at, instead of imposing our own kind of narratives and norms and structures and policies that are expensive, cumbersome, time, costly, and very, very seeped in our own definitions of risk management. I think you could start seeing fundamental shifts. I think it's why you've seen some more breakthroughs on the social impact side, on the private sector side, on the entrepreneurship side where some of those limitations aren't so cumbersome. Um, but those are the kinds of shifts I've seen. I can't tell you how incredibly I've been in so many rooms with finance ministers or foreign ministers or others off record where they're just so frustrated with us and our processes and how long and expensive they are. And at the end of the day, they don't even meet the needs of um, their own populations. Um, conversely, I've worked with leaders who in um maybe the interest of their people is not what they have in mind. You know, the reason they want our aid or the reason they want us to put our road in a certain district is that they can win the election, right? And so also knowing when we push back and when we're fighting for the right thing. I mean, that, that's kind of the political spaces too that we have to kind of be smart about as well.
1: That's fascinating. And I, I want to jump back a little bit to some of the personal you have in the story. You talk a lot about um, what it means to be a staffer. And, and I wonder, you know, especially for people who are listening to this who are earlier in their career and trying to decide the direction they might take, uh, wh- what does it mean to be a staffer? What is it like?
0: Well, I joke that if you're in the U.S. government, maybe any government, unless you're the president of the United States, it doesn't matter what job or title or rank you have, you're always a staffer. You're always staffing up in the bureaucracy. Uh, whether you're an intern, which is what I was when I started my career at the Department, whether you're a desk officer whether you're a program officer, development officer, um, a senate staffer, or whether you're a deputy assistant secretary of state, as I was later in my career, or you know the vice president of compacts, um, which was my last position before leaving government. Um, it, what it means is understanding that you work in an incredibly large cumbersome bureaucracy filled with rules, regulations, culture, both political rules, policy rules, and cultural rules and norms. Um, understanding the language of the bureaucracy is really, really important for success. Understanding your immediate ecosystem, the power your boss and your colleagues have not just overview but with you to either help you succeed or to hold you back. Um, these spaces can be either incredibly empowering if you're in the right ecosystem or, can they feel, or they can feel suffocating if you have the wrong ingredients or the wrong people. In your, in your ecosystem. And so my most of my career at both junior and senior levels, I've I'm always been a staffer. It means knowing how to um, get buy in, how to staff up, how to put your needs um, secondary to those that you serve in the system. I remember, Raj, I mean, you know, I have three kids right now, but for most of my career, at one point I had three kids under five years of age, and I was on the road all the time. And I remember I gave birth to my third child and I was still in the hospital. And um, I, I think like three hours later, my phone was going off on things that had not gotten resolved before I would left for work. And my husband was like, put the phone away, you can wait. And I said, I know, but you know, at the end of the day, I need to come back to this job. Um, you know, I'm going on maternity leave, but I work in very political spaces where I have zero job security. And at that moment. And I felt like even though I was in the hospital, I'd just given birth, you know, a few hours before I was like, I'll be damned if I don't answer those texts and give them the information that they need. Um, You know, I always felt that sense of like lack of job security and would do what it would take, um, even at personal sacrifice to to be able to do that. Um, I think things have gotten better, you know, in the system since, you know, I had that run. But those are the kinds of things when you're in that staffer mentality and mode, it can feel hard because you can feel like you're sacrificing also not just your professional life sometimes to making sure that others' needs are met, but on the personal side as well.
1: Yeah, you talk a lot about the, the trade-offs of being a, a young mom. You talk about for women who are managing family responsibilities, you know that there's a personal toll from this kind of work. Um, I guess maybe, could you talk a little bit more about that? Like if you were advising a younger woman who is thinking about this kind of career path, would you, would you do it again? I mean, it is you, you went through quite a lot actually as, as you detail in the book. And as you say, it's kind of hard to say no, right? It's a job where they say, we need you to fly to Afghanistan or Sri Lanka tomorrow. You got to go. Um, and that's particularly hard with, with little babies. You talk about like, you know, pumping breast milk in war zones, uh, Speak a little bit more to that and what you advise younger people.
0: Yeah. Well, first, look, I've had this incredible career. I mean, honestly, if I die tomorrow, I will die with no regrets in terms of my career and feeling incredibly blessed to have the opportunities that I had. Um, So I feel incredibly grateful. And I'm incredibly grateful to all the people that I worked with and for who created those spaces and opportunities for me. Um, including many, many men um, and white men in the system and senior powerful people in the system who created space for me to be at the table. I'm incredibly grateful to them. Um, that all being said, it is incredibly, these careers can be incredibly taxing um, if you're trying to manage family life, um, if you're trying to kind of balance your personal professional and do it if you don't have a whole lot of support at home. Maybe you don't have parents nearby or other support systems, and you feel much more isolated on your own. They can be really difficult. I mean, most of my career um, during this point when I, you know, spent, I was on the road. Um, I think I covered during this time period of the book about 750,000 miles around the world in dozens of countries. Um, it wasn't just you know the leaving DC to go get on a plane and travel and then come back exhausted. It was also facing security threats, including death threats when I traveled. Um, war zones for sure, but also trying to figure out how to keep, you know, my breast supply up. And when I was pumping, um, I pumped off, I mean, I was pumping for most of my time during this time because I had three young kids. And I think I never talked openly about it. I never, I always hid that I was doing it. I I remember this one time in Afghanistan, we flew in on a, on a CODEL with other senators um, to some, some of our NATO bases and, I hid inside army tents in porta potties to pump secretly and quietly. So none of the senators knew what I was doing and I wouldn't, you know, get in trouble. And I perceived at that point that I could have gotten, you know, that I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't feel comfortable talking about it. Um, so, you know, I think balancing the motherhood part, especially when you have young kids and you're so exhausted all the time and you can't even think straight on a good day, balancing that with always being on Um can be really exhausting. I mean, one of the things I don't talk so much about in the book, but I'll, you know, I'm reflecting more on, it's not just showing up to work and being there for everybody else. It's also for women having to look the part, having to look put together, polished, dressed, and, you know, have an image of that you belong, right? Um, And that takes time. I mean, I don't know for you, Raj, but for me, it takes time to put on my, do my makeup and my hair and to get the clothes and the jewelry and all the things that we need to do behind the scenes that that we don't openly talk about um, that adds hours and hours to our lives every week and month that we don't talk about um, in these spaces. And so it's exhausting. I mean, it's just openly exhausting, hard, and um, there's very little or too little recognition, I think, about the toll that we are asking women in particular and moms and parents. Um, to juggle in place to do all of this, um, and the support systems that we just don't have in so many of our societies right now, especially with the cost of childcare being so expensive. Um, I, I think I write about this in the book. I mean, most of my salary at this point went directly to pay off my childcare costs. Which, with three kids living in D.C., I think at one point we're close to you know fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year is what I was paying all in, and just childcare alone. Um, so I made no money, you know, financially during this stage of my life. Um, I was And and, I'm incredibly lucky to have had a spouse and a partner that pulled equal weight to help make all of this done and um, to support me when I traveled and to be able to do that and with moms and mom-in-laws flying in, you know, on the fly as needed sometimes when they could afford to do so as well. So. Yeah, it's hard. Um, I share a lot of stories for those of you that haven't had a chance to read it. I share some of the stories of what that actually looks like, the toll it can take on a marriage, what it looks like to balance the motherhood pieces of this. I don't think we talk enough about this um, as we think about these careers. And so I wanted to at least be able to share some of what I went through in the hopes that it can help um, others going through similar journeys. Um, And to say it gets better, um, in terms of advice, you know, a couple things I would just say is um, I wish I was more open back then with what I needed in my career, with my bosses, with my eco- my professional ecosystem. I felt too scared to talk about it. I didn't have the vocabulary to talk about it. No one else was talking about it either. So I didn't. And I didn't lean into that. I wish I had. I think it's a little easier now in the culture we have. But please lean in talk openly about what you need and talk openly about your struggles and what it's taking for, for you to make it work. I think we just have to have these conversations. It's super important. Um, and then the second thing I would say is you need some type of support structure to help, to help you survive. So making sure that you can cobble that together organically, whether that's a spouse, whether that's friends, family, um, whether that's people in your community, on your neighborhood, on your street, that you're going to band together to support each other. Um, it does take a village. We don't live in villages in the United States, but it takes a village to make this work. And so you have to create your own.
1: Yeah, I think it's one of the, one of the great parts of the book is how open you are about all of those challenges. And, and even at one point, you know, speaking out and getting to, to take Fridays off to be with your kids, um, which sounded like it was a pretty big thing to do and, and made a big difference. You know, one of the things you have at the book at the end is a section where you have advice and ideas and you talk about how we need to maybe rethink the role of travel in this work and, and you know obviously you wrote this book during the pandemic you know we're all rethinking travel but i guess specifically for the kinds of roles you've had do you think we can go to a a different you know mindset around travel than, than what we've had in the past or is it just so naturally linked to to the job and to the credibility and to the relationships to do diplomacy that that no it doesn't matter you're going to have to be on on a plane young kids or not um, just all the time how do you think about that
0: I think it's going to be a combination of both Um, I mean you absolutely have to make relationships in person whether that's you know locally in your in your community or around the world um, to do this type of work it just doesn't work remotely hundred percent so I think that's true and real. Um, that being said I don't think you need to do everything in person once you can form some of those relationships form some of the trust um, you can use technology to help fill in some of those gaps in more in cheaper more effective efficient ways to be able to do that and I'm really grateful to the pandemic in many ways that we accelerated our use of technology to be able to connect. Um, technology is not going to be a substitution for human contact so I do think it's going to be you know a balance between the two to be able to do that. Um, and then it's also just the norms of, you know, how you travel, where you travel, and making sure that, um, you know, even the support when you travel. I mean, it's funny, when you work in the U.S. government, they're so strict when you travel abroad about, you know, economy class only, for instance, and all of these very strict rules and norms about um, travel. You know, I used to always feel like I would travel around the world, I would sleep zero on my way there, I would land at like six in the morning. At eight in the morning I would be, you know, in the in the car on the way to see the US ambassador or to see a finance minister or whoever I was seeing and I had to have looked like I had slept for three days and, you know, looked polished and presented and all ready to go. I would do sixteen hour days. Oftentimes I would leave the country for the next country. And I would come home so tired. Um, and needing to sleep for a week, but having none of that flexibility because you come home to the kids, you come home back to your job and you just carry on with life. And I think when we say travel, it's not just um, how often you go or where you go or you know how to plan the travel. It's also to plan for when you come home and how to create spaces where you can detox, where you can catch your breath, where you can you know try to be healthy physically and mentally. Um, And how you can create work ecosystems that actually let you be healthy when you return home, as well as just as important as, as the travel conversation of how often or where you go.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. It isn't really just the glamour of travel that I think a lot of younger people looking at careers in this space think about, but, you know, the reality of it when you're trying to juggle all of these things uh, you know, just as we kind can of can i
0: say can i say yeah, one more thing about travel sure
1: please you
0: know, and I, I do i do mention this in the book but it's something that always these are like the little things no one talks to you about in graduate school or on your jobs but for me travel meant not just planning travel or booking travel or packing a suitcase for me travel as a mom meant thinking through the million meals i had to prepare Prep before, you know, while I was on the road, getting all the groceries for that, finding time starting from like 10 a night to midnight to prep all the meals, pack the meals, write a menu for what to expect for the four, five, seven days I was gone, um, thinking through all of the school events that were coming up and what was going to be required for that uh, activity, soccer, et cetera, et cetera, coming up with the schedules for the nannies or the, the caretakers that were going to pick up and drop off. So you know, I just want to say there's all of these like things that we just don't openly talk about, but what it takes to make your life really work and the burdens and the costs that um, parents and moms in particular, but all parents have to do behind the scenes that take time that take a mental tax and toll to make it work. And I think those are the things that also just kind of added to my overall stress about when I knew I had to hit the road. That's, those are the million things going through my mind in addition to all the work pieces of what the trip meant.
1: Yeah. You're it's, I'm so glad, glad that you're talking about it openly, you know, that you talk about it openly in the book and here in this podcast, I think it's such an important topic. Um, and I wonder just as we wrap up, if, if you could share a little bit more on that theme for, for people who are considering, you know, their, their career in the development sector this is a really changed space from when you got into it, right? There's so many more foundations and NGOs and private sector players and some of the big institutions, um, have been changing and reforming. What what do you think about a career in this space? What's your, what kind of advice are you giving to the, to the graduate students you deal with every day at the, at the Harvard center?
0: So, um, the book ends with two chapters that are all about, Um, So uh, what does this mean for you Uh, if you're a student, if you're a grad student, undergrad, if you're if you're just starting out your career or maybe you're even mid-career, what does this mean for you? And I break it up into 21 recommendations It's because the book came out in 2021. So I came up with 21 recommendations for the next generation of what I'm calling development diplomats. And first, just to say. Um, While I'm honest in the book about the struggles, about the exhaustion, about um, some of the obstacles I faced, I do that in service of um, what I think is an incredible career that people can have in this development diplomat space, and I hope we can train up intentionally an incredibly rich new generation um, coming down the pike of development diplomats. So the book has 21 recommendations and it's split into six different themes. And the themes are around money, bureaucracy, politics, language, emotional intelligence, and diversity. And for each of those six themes, I have specific recommendations for things that um, I think you should either look at differently or consider or learn differently than what you may have either studied or what you're doing in your current line of work. Um, I also have a suggested curriculum of coursework that you could consider taking an undergraduate or graduate spaces or if you're going back from mid-career or on the job training as well, that is much more intersectional in thinking through the development diplomacy spaces, marrying traditional public policy curriculum on the foreign policy national security side with the economic policy development policy sides um, in, in those lines of work. So um, those are pieces in the book that um, both are summarized in chapters 13, 14. There's a cheat sheet with all 21 of them in the book as well for easy reading. Um, and, you know, I would love for graduate um, public policy programs, both at the Kennedy School and beyond, to kind of really lean into this concept of development diplomacy, to think differently about how we can train the next generation. Um, and, you know, even institutions like the Foreign Service Institute at the U.S. State Department and other similar um, foreign service agencies as who are training their next generation of diplomats as well um i think it's an incredibly rewarding space we need the diversity at the table we need women at the table we need people from all walks of life at the table and to to be able to support a healthy ecosystem for them to be able to do that we need everyone to lean in open and honest about what it's going to take for us to get there um and to build this next generation's uh, potential together i'm really excited to do that it's one of the things i'm most excited about being now at the Center for International Development up at Harvard, um, and I'm excited to see how we can do this together.
1: Well, Fatima Sumar, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. And you know, there's nothing better than hearing someone's personal story as a way to make the point, which you, you very much do in this discussion and in the book. Uh, the book is The Development Diplomat, Working Across Borders, Boardrooms, and Bureaucracies to End Poverty. Thank you so much, Fatima, for taking the time to have this discussion today.
0: Raj, thank you so much. Thank you for also always sharing your story with us so openly. Thanks for um, helping us connect dots across our own silos um, through the work you're doing at DevX. Thanks to the DevX Book Club. I really appreciate this profile. And um, just the last thing I just wanted to say is, I really wrote this book for all of you. I mean, I wrote it walking in the woods and during the pandemic is when the idea came to mind to be more honest and open about what it takes to have these types of careers, the behind the scenes pieces here. Um, And to really help inspire the next generation so that we can have impact all around the world and have rich and meaningful lives. So thanks for reading it. Thanks for commenting on it. And um, I'm excited to build Development Diplomacy together with all of you. So thanks, Raj.
1: Thank you all for joining. If you like the podcast, please share with your friends and give us five stars and we really do want to hear from you. Please leave your thoughts in the comments or send me a message on Twitter at Raj underscore Devex. To learn what we're reading next, make suggestions for future guests, or submit questions for authors, be sure to sign up for our Devex book club mailing list, which you can find in the description of the show wherever you're listening to this. If you care about global development issues and you want the latest news, don't forget to subscribe to the Devex Newswire at the link in the comments, where you'll get the day's top global development, breaking news, analysis, and opinion, as well as the date of the next book club. Until then, do good out there, and thanks for joining.